Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Ben McKean, who's the author of Disorienting Neoliberalism, Global Justice and the Outer Limit of Freedom. This book was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press, and it is a really fascinating and complex um, sort of dive into the connection between ideas of freedom, the global economy, and our understanding of who really does have political power. Um, But I'm going to let Ben talk to us a little bit about that as we discuss his book. First, I'd like to welcome Ben McKean to the New Books podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Ben. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I came to this project uh, as both an academic and an activist, I guess. I had first gotten interested in issues of kind of global justice and fairness in the global economy uh, as a student labor activist. Um, And when I went to graduate school to pursue my interest in political theory, I was struck that the literature on global justice within political theory and political philosophy just seemed to be motivated by different concerns than the global justice activism that I'd been a part of. And so it took me a long time to wrestle with that, actually, and to think about what the relationship was between my experience as an anti-sweatshop activist, um, a living wage campaigner, all those kinds of things, and how that was connected to the way that concerns about fairness and equality were being expressed in the kind of hegemonic political theory that I was being educated into. And so the book was both an attempt to understand for myself what I think about the global economy and to think about how political theory can be useful to people as they also try and think about uh, questions like where do they belong in the global economy? How does it affect them? How should they think about the people um, who make the stuff that they wear um, every day, the phones that they communicate with people with every day? And and I found the, the question that you posed that you just also articulated you know, what is the role of political theory? And part of your your thesis and part of the, the research in the book and, and the sort of the, 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 the length of the book is about trying to orient and use political theory, um, not only in thinking, but also in that move to, you know, sort of be active in pursuing justice. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you saw, as you say, it took you a bit of time to sort of get to the point where what role does political theory play in this question of global justice and activism? Can you talk about the sort of lay of the land that you encountered that you thought wasn't quite wasn't quite working, perhaps? Yeah. So the the stand what I call the standard approach to global justice in a lot of the literature takes what are now these pretty settled convictions about egalitarian liberalism, often typically drawn from the work of John Rawls, sort of takes that as a starting point and says, okay, inequalities can only be justified um, if they're to the most benefit of the worst off, um, the the famous difference principle, and then asks, well, what's the scope of that? How widely should that apply? Do we really need to care about international or global inequality, or do we only need to care about um, domestic inequality? And in my view, the something like that approach doesn't really help us, doesn't help orient us to existing political institutions, doesn't help us act in the world 
either when we think about domestic or global institutions. So to illustrate that in the book, I talk a little bit about uh, an op-ed that a senator wrote uh, saying, you know, we should uh, use a quote-unquote Rawlsian lens to think about public policy. And the thing that's surprising, perhaps, about that is that the senator who wrote that in 2012 was Ted Cruz, whose you know conservative uh, vision of you know a market-based society uh, is extremely different from from the kind of society that Rawls himself envisioned. So, in my mind, that pointed to a weakness in the way that that these liberal egalitarian theories had been developed. It showed that they weren't really helping people think about existing institutions in a way that facilitated political action. They were, in this important sense, underdetermined. Uh, and so in the book, I developed this account of, of political theory's task as orientation, which is one that I think political theorists and political thinkers across the spectrum embrace. Rawls himself embraced it as a, an aim explicitly, but so do critics of, of liberalism and critics of Rawls, um, like Raymond Goyce. So in the account of orientation that I offer, I suggest that political theory um, can provide resources to help us um, be better oriented to the world by doing a couple things. There's three parts, I think, of an effective orientation. The first is to provide an account of the way things actually work. Um, And that's something that Rawls himself had very little interest in, um, in his academic work. The second thing is we need an account of how our current circumstances are made intelligible and, and legitimated to us. What are the prevailing ways of understanding what's going on, because those, of course, aren't always going to direct us to the way things actually are. And then finally, we need an account of the normative values that we should be promoting in light of um, the way things actually work and the way that that those operations usually become intelligible or are made legitimate to us, to those of us who are subject to it. And so in, in the book, what I argue is um, I try to provide an account of how those of us who are um, subjected to the global economy should be oriented to it in a way that I think ultimately can help us um, be better political actors within that, within our circumstances. And the global economy that you talk about, and you sort of sketch this out in the early parts of the book also, um, and and you, you bring it forward right in the introduction, obviously, with um, some of the discussion of these um, disasters that happen in Bangladesh with regard to um, the factories where so much clothing is made. Um, and and you know, to some degree, the, the disconnection between what's happening half a globe away with regard to the material that is being made and then shipped back to the U.S. or other places for purchase. Um, and this is really what we start talking about when we think about globalization these days. Can you sort of sketch out, you know, how this sort of global economy has become sort of background noise in a lot of ways and not necessarily something that people really do find themselves oriented towards, except perhaps to be critical of? It is, I think, a surprising fact that, of course, we're interacting with the global economy all the time. I mean, I invite any listeners to look at the, you know, labels of their clothes, you know, we're, we're really, we're, we're very much in the middle of um, the global economy as we sit here, very much in the middle of transnational politics. And, but we're not always um, oriented to it that way. We're not always kind of habituated to thinking about those kinds of connections. Um, so I suggest that 
it's useful to begin an analysis of the global economy from looking more carefully at these transnational supply chains um, that I examine. And that I, I begin the book by describing um, the Tazreen Fashions fire, um, which killed you know, 120 odd workers. Um, and then just a few months later, the collapse of the factories at Rana Plaza, um, which killed you know, more than a thousand workers in Bangladesh. So, I mean, enormous industrial um, tragedies um, and injustices that I think are emblematic of the global economy. But the way that when we talk about the global economy or globalization in other ways, it's often presented as a kind of inexorable force, um, that it's just a kind of thing that's happening that we can't, that's outside of our control. And as we think about, as the book tries to provide an account of orientation, then in its first chapter, it provides an account of how we're usually oriented to the economy through um, neoliberalism, right? So neoliberalism as, um, as an orientation um, trains us to see things through a market lens um, and provides uh, a way of understanding ourselves as entrepreneurs, um, thinking about ourselves as investing in our own human capital. Um, and these are ways of, I think, depoliticizing the global economy that are, um, that are very widespread, right? We just kind of think about um, think about our relationships to the people who make our clothes and our electronics and things like that through um, through this lens of a kind of neoliberal globalization um, that's inevitable and kind of mutually beneficial, even if there's a couple, you know, um, even if you have to crack a couple eggs along the way to make the you know globalization omelet. Um, and then in the second chapter, I look at how transnational supply chains actually work. And part of what I argue is that contrary to the kind of neoliberal depoliticized way of looking at the global economy, when you actually look at the operation of supply chains, they're very clearly, I think, political institutions that seek to govern both the workers in the factories, but also the consumers um, are also subject to them. And by reorienting our view of supply chains, we're also able to begin a broader reorientation to neoliberalism and to think more broadly about ways that it might be resisted. And I wanted to ask you specifically to talk a little bit more about these transnational supply chains, because I thought that the reconceptualization of them as really governing institutions was both fascinating and original and really helped me to think about sort of these the way that the economy and politics has often been separated um, in a lot of conceptual work, but that in fact, these, these kinds of economic mechanisms are in fact, very political. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by transnational supply chains and how they occupy a political space? I think everyone's probably familiar with transnational supply chains in the sense that they all know, we all know through our experience of the global economy that stuff comes from everywhere in this way that can be quite confusing, right? People, you may have heard that there's something like components from, you know, 50 plus countries in your iPhone. And so we get this kind of bewildered experience of stuff coming from everywhere and then becoming this, you know, commodity in our hands um, or on our, you know, on our back. And, as I discuss in the book, that experience, um, which I try to connect to, you know, some elements of political theory, like Marx's analysis of commodity fetishism, but also just 
the experience we have of being kind of disoriented or, or this kind of uncanny way that, that um, we can't ever quite believe or can't ever quite feel like the, the history of the object is in our grasp. Um, and that can be a very disempowering feeling. Um, but of course, there are people in charge of this process. And part of what I do in the book is look at the what I call the borrowing a term from Wendy Brown, the political rationality of the supply chain managers and how the people who actually are in charge make these decisions. Because you get this account of supply chains from people like Thomas Friedman, this kind of glorification of globalization is you know, making the world flat. He compares supply chains to great symphonies in the way that they all somehow kind of magically artistically come together. And of course, that's not a um, very, <laughs> that overlooks some things, let's say. Um, and part of what it overlooks is the exercise of power, um, the exercise of power over workers. Um, and in general, I think one of the things that's striking about these neoliberal ways of describing the economy is labor as a particular kind of component really drops out, right? Everyone, labor just becomes another thing an entrepreneur of the self can sell, um, which, you know, then by sort of making workers a less distinctive, um, you know, group kind of becomes disempowering. Uh, and of course, the I, part of what I argue in the, in the book is that workers aren't merely subject to the power of these companies, but but these companies really make claims to authority. Um, they really do make claims not just to having kind of economic power, but to having political power in certain kinds of ways. And we can see that not just in, as it were, the discourse of these supply chain managers, but in the reality of these supply chains. The, um, the export processing zones in Bangladesh, for example, are um, a physical space that's been depoliticized, right? They're put outside the normal laws of the country. Even the borders of, of countries can effectively be redrawn by these export processing zones where the, you know, the import and export is done right there. All the customs work is done right there. It's, not, it's no longer the border at the actual border of the country. The export processing zones often have you know, rules against freedom of association and free speech. In the case of Bangladesh, the, the chair not only is an army general um, who who's in charge of the export processing zone, zones and reports directly to the prime minister. So you can see in all these different ways, the intertwining of politics and economics here that gets really passed over if we look at these things from within this kind of neoliberal perspective. Um, and also the involvement of consumers gets effaced in that way. So part of what I trace in the book is the way supply chains create the experience for consumers of just interacting with them at the moment of purchase, right? We we feel like we're only connected um, as consumers when we're actually there making the buy of you know our phone or our clothes or our car or what have you. But these companies are engaged in kind of massive corporate surveillance of us, um, and they track us at, both individually and in the aggregate very carefully. So they're using this information about us. Um, making us a part of the chain, even when we're not aware of it, and using that information um, really to intensify the exploitation of workers um, who are forced to work on completely unbalanced um, schedules. Um, and so it's deceptive to think of ourselves as only being a part of the supply chain at the you know, moment of exchange. Um, these really are companies that are seeking to govern our behavior um, to their own profit. And 
if we reorient ourselves to them and think about the, them as attempting to govern us, I think we can provide the basis then for um, solidarity with with the workers who are in the supply chains, as we both, in our own different kinds of ways, have an interest in working together to, to resist neoliberalism. And and I would ask you this as a tangent, and you can choose not to answer it, and that's fine. Um, given the the pandemic experience, where we are ordering so many things online, so that the point of purchase is one that is an abstract and doesn't involve engagement with other people, does that even make it more disconnected and, and to some degree disoriented? I think it does. I think that we have this experience, you know, now it really does seem, I think for many people, almost magical how quickly uh, the goods can be delivered to our door. And of course that logistics process involves an enormous amount of violence done to people not just in the factories that are manufacturing the goods that we're purchasing, but in the Amazon warehouses um, where the stuff is, um, you know, processed and shipped. Um, there's in the sh- in the on the the shipping containers um, on the ships that are you know being brought over, um, the truck drivers um, at the ports. I mean, all of these are moments of often significant exploitation. Um, that are you know even harder to see um, in many ways if we're stuck in our homes. Um, and I do think that there's a real question about where we go from the pandemic. Um, many companies want to use this as an opportunity to deepen the exploitation um, and to say this just shows we need even more flexible supply chains. Um, where what flexible supply chains mean is you know an infinite supply of exploitable workers uh, because you know we never know what's going to happen and when people are going to need stuff. Um, other people, I think, are engaged in, you know, I think you, you've seen in the pandemic and, the, for example, the, um, the need to import massive quantities of personal protective equipment. Um, other people are moving towards this kind of reshoring discourse, this kind of nationalist discourse of trying to bring production home. Um, as I argue in the book, I don't think that's really a viable path. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, the pandemic only deepens the need for transnational solidarity that I outline in the book. And, and I wanted to move in that direction, but I did first want to ask you to sort of explain the basic term that you use throughout the book and that many of us are familiar with, but in this context, what are we talking about with regard to neoliberalism and the way that that sort of concept has sort of pressed this supply chain um, power structure into a, a kind of abstraction that most of us are not, again, engaged with most of the time. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism is obviously a very complicated and contested term. And to be honest, I was reluctant in a lot of ways to foreground it in the book. But ultimately, I felt that it really was a helpful way of thinking about um, our current circumstances. So I think part of what makes neoliberalism a confusing term is not just the fact that it gets used in all these ways, but it really does, I think, is best understood as referring both to a new way of legitimating capitalism and also a new um, modality of capitalism. So it provides both a new justification for practices, but also it changes the practices. And I think that that is part of what makes it a confusing concept for people. So 
we've seen uh, a number of economic transformations um, over the past now almost 50 years, um, as we've seen, um, you know, a growing um, state austerity, we've seen a growing financialization of the economy, we've seen the rise of these transnational supply chains. Um, and so there have been these real transformations of the economy that have occurred. Um, and we, at the same time, in order to justify them, we also see the rise of neoliberalism as I really think of a body of political theory as a way of um, explaining why these practices are in everyone's best interests. And so in the book, I turn in particular to Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek, whose works I think are significant, not just as kind of academic works of theorizing, but you know, these books were bestsellers, um, and not only were they very influential in that way, but um, you know, these books were taken up by, and these ideas were taken up by political leaders, um, and so they really have shaped the institutions we inhabit. And so, because of that, I think many people are habituated to these neoliberal ways of seeing, um, even if they haven't had kind of firsthand exposure to Friedman or Hayek or anything like that. But ultimately, this idea, this neoliberal idea that the point of government is to ensure we have an efficient market and that we all benefit in the long run from having an efficient market um, and that ultimately we're all better off thinking of ourselves primarily as economic actors rather than political actors. Those are ideas that I think are really you know, pervasive um, and that people do pick up um, even if they haven't kind of engaged in the academic study of, of neoliberal thinking. And, and and many people haven't, obviously. I mean, political theorists and economists and um, sociologists, many people have, obviously. But, um, you know, even my students, when I sort of talk about it, they're not usually sure what it's about. Um, and and so I don't know that it is, it is a regular part of the conversation, but it is part of, as you say, the sort of orientation of perspective. And I think that's really a large part of what I found so fascinating in terms of your book is to try to compel us to think about our orientation towards the economy and our orientation towards what it means to be a part of an economic system as well as a political system and, and, you know, the title of your book. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how, neoliberalism has to some degree prevented us from being oriented to see what is in fact the reality of the economic situation. I think that's right. I think neoliberalism by, uh, I mean, I think neoliberalism does provide a complete orientation. Um, that's part of what makes it powerful is it does provide an explanation of how the world works and it does provide normative values that we should promote. It does have a vision of freedom as choice in the market, which many people find appealing, not least because it seems like the only kind of freedom that's available to us um, in lots of cases. Um, talking to my students uh, about the uh, people day trading GameStop stock, people felt like that was an experience of action that was more meaningful in a lot of ways than other kinds of experiences of politics that they've had. And I think that that's very telling people, you know, when people vote, things like that, it doesn't always feel freeing. And part of what neoliberalism does 
is it says, yeah, don't worry about that stuff. It isn't really freedom. Government is ultimately about like coercion. It's not really a space of freedom. Freedom is being in the market where you, the consumer, can be powerful. It, of course, dis- disincentivizes identifying with yourself as a worker because there you're supplying goods to the market. You're at the market's mercy, but it's as a consumer that you can feel powerful um, or it's as an investor and entrepreneur in yourself that you can feel powerful. And those are really compelling ways of narrating life to yourself. Um, I mean, sometimes they can verge on the on the ridiculous. I, I talk in the book about the management, the business management guru, Tom Peters, and how he talks about even janitors should work on building their brand. Uh, but I think for a lot of people, it does make sense to think about your agency in terms of human capital and brand building. Um, social media contributes to that. Obviously, the gig economy contributes to that, where you're constantly being evaluated. You need to worry about, about that. Um, but also as a consumer, right, you feel powerful. Oh, I get to rate this person. So we have all these experiences that that make neoliberalism um, a compelling way of understanding the world, um, in part because neoliberalism has made the world we live in in all these significant ways. So breaking out of that, I think, requires um, a pretty complete reorientation. Um, so it requires, as I say, um, understanding what neoliberalism has done. It requires understanding neoliberal political theory as a way of making the world intelligible, but it also requires providing a different account of how things actually work, um, which is why I think the focus on transnational supply chains um, can be so instructive. And it also requires a different account of normative values. If neoliberalism gives us vision of freedom that we can experience, um, reorienting requires a different vision of freedom that people can find compelling um, as a way of understanding their circumstances, even though they don't experience themselves as free. And I was going to ask you, that was my next question. When we start talking about this terminology freedom and, you know, we have been steeped now for decades in, you know, you have market freedom. Um, You can choose any iPhone you like but it's going to be an iPhone, right? Um, that you, you know, you are going to be able to, as you say, rate things. And, and as you are talking about brands and sort of the consumer mentality, I've called, of course, thinking also about like student evaluations um, and rate my professor um, and that, you know, professors have to develop brands as well. Um but what are we talking about in terms of understanding freedom in a way that moves a reorientation from neoliberalism to thinking about it in, again, a kind of political and activist means? That's a great question. I think that, let me put it this way, neoliberalism faces a particular challenge in providing an orientation to the world, which is that it has a vision of the market as being something that's fundamentally out of our control. So it has, if people, if it's going to get people to adopt a neoliberal way of looking at the world, it needs to get people to accept that their fundamental parts of their life, they don't have um, control over. Um, It needs to accept that the market itself is in effect disorienting. That's a tricky thing for neoliberalism to do. And as I argue in the book, if we actually focus on how neoliberalism itself reflects on how it can get people to become neoliberals 
we can see places where neoliberalism doesn't provide a very compelling account of the world um, in various ways. Opportunities in the world where we can point to things and say, actually, we have a better experience of what's happening there. Um, and the problem for, but of course, facts aren't ever enough. <laughs> um, as we know, they're not always um, going to move people. And we do need to give these accounts of, of values. And the problem for those of us who want to offer a different vision of freedom than the neoliberal vision of freedom as choice in the market is by definition, we need to be, because we're critical of neoliberalism and saying that it's inadequate, it's unjust, it's unfree. We need to be able to offer a vision of freedom that is compelling to people, even though they won't necessarily have firsthand experience of it. And so that's a tricky thing to do. And so the account of freedom that I give in the book has two parts. On the one hand, I developed this account of freedom um, from a reading of John Rawls and um, Hegel, uh, where I, you borrow this phrase from Rawls of freedom at the outer limit, and I provide what I think is a, an interpretation of a vision of freedom that's shared by both egalitarian liberals and other, um, other traditions, other traditions of political thought that have their roots in you know, the various branches coming out of Hegel. Um, and that vision of freedom at the outer limit is the idea that we might reflectively be able to look back on our lives and affirm the institutions that have shaped us, even though um, we were never able to choose them. But And so I, I think that there is that can be a compelling view of freedom as an alternative to choice in the market. It tells us something, gives us a much richer account of human experience. But because we've grown up under unjust institutions, we're denied that experience of freedom. And so we can't simply articulate the ideal um, as Rawls does. We need to provide an account of how the ideal actually helps us navigate the world. How does how do we think about the value of this freedom that we have been denied since growing up in an unjust global economy? We can't affirm the institutions that have shaped us. We're trained in all these ways um, to overlook injustices, um, and we need to actively kind of resist those ways of that institutions have shaped us. And so, for that, we can't rest with with Rawls and Hegel. And in the book, I turn there to a variety of thinkers, predominantly W. E. B. Du Bois, um, but also Theodore Adorno and Gloria Anzaldúa, who give us, I think, accounts that are consistent with um, with that Hegelian Rawlsian kind of dispositional account of freedom, this idea of, of freedom as that kind of ready acceptance of institutions, and tell us what that means. Um, how we can find freedom then in institutions that we reject and how we might be able to find freedom um, and express our freedom through, um, through resistance, through the rejection of those institutions and through disidentification with them rather than finding ourselves at home in them. And in, in this regard, I also wanted to ask you in terms of the, the sort of conflation of politics and economics, um, does the reorientation that we can potentially gain from considering some of the theories by people like Adorno or Du Bois, is it possible to start to be able to see some of the distinctions between the economic and the political as we sort of try to reorient ourselves away from neoliberalism? Right. So what I argue is that neoliberalism does make possible new kinds of political coalitions to resist it. Um, unlike, um, so 
neoliberalism avows the supremacy of the economic over the political, right? Ultimately, even political authority has a kind of economic justification um, on the neoliberal view. And that, I think, is a pretty significant difference in um, the way it approaches legitimacy from traditional liberal views, which argue that we should keep politics and economics separate, that they have maybe different sources of, of legitimacy. And so when you that kind of a view leaves itself open to you know the kind of famous Marxist critique that says these political rights that we have or kind of or political freedoms are empty so long as we're denied economic freedoms and economic power. Um, and so that leads to a kind of Marxist unmasking of um, of liberal rights as being um, ultimately economic. But then neoliberalism, you know, <laughs> just kind of comes out and says it and says, yeah, that's right. With economics is 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 that is what matters. Um, and so I think that that does create the possibility for these new kinds of political coalitions um, of people who want to resist neoliberalism and who want to. Um, promote egalitarian values and to say, to reject the supremacy of the economic, um, not necessarily um, to, as it were, restore the separation of politics and economics now, but to recognize um, their interpenetration, right? And to recognize that um, both are really realms characterized by power, both are realms characterized by um, claims to authority. Um, And so we can see political contestation happening, you know, throughout our lives. Um, And that's not to say that it's not sometimes helpful to think about, you know, here's the economy, here's politics or whatever, but to, to really have a different way of understanding those realms than the way that neoliberalism trains us to. And, and I wanted to ask you, and this is, you talk about this towards the end of the book as well, with regard to sort of the role that um, activism and social movements and social norms can bring forward in terms of this reorientation. And you lean into the work by Iris Marion Young in some of this discussion. Can you talk a little bit about how to consider that in context of the critique also of the the orientation that neoliberalism has sort of pushed upon us and how to sort of reorient ourselves more towards, you know, as you say, the the sort of way that political theory can move us towards a bit of activism. So part of what I want to think about is if we don't, if most people don't experience choice in the market as being a satisfying experience of freedom, where, where can we find, um, where can we express freedom in our lives? Um, and part of what I argue in the book is that one place we can express freedom is by being involved in these social movements. Uh, that are seeking to resist neoliberalism. Um, And I think those can be experiences of freedom, not only because I think they promote policies that uh, are are going to better promote justice, freedom, and equality, but also because the experience of being in a movement can itself be an experience of freedom. It provides, if what the market does is ultimately try and build our lives as a competitive order and to try and see others as obstacles to the realization of our plans. The experience of social movement organizing is very different. Um, and what I describe it in the book as being a kind of grassroots form of governmentality, right? We're trying to get people to do stuff. We don't have coercive authority over people, but 
we want people to come out to the rally against the WTO or, or what have you, you know, we, we need to, in some sense, um, exercise power over them. Um, and it needs to be, uh, but it needs to be in a way that's compatible with their freedom and equality. Um, and so I think we can find in these experiences of, of social movement organizing experiences of freedom and equality and freedom and equality going together in a way that's very contrary to the neoliberal um, orientation. And is the, the sort of burgeoning and broadening sort of economic inequality potentially a problem as we look at this neoliberal orientation and also as we think about trying to move beyond it? I think the kind of inequality that we're experiencing now is, uh, you know, remarkable, (laughs) um, to put it mildly. And I think that where traditional, where, where the, I'd say mainstream of egalitarian liberalism has focused on inequality as in a certain sense, the paradigmatic injustice, um, part of what we're seeing now is just trying to connect those inequalities to, um, the processes that give rise to them. Um, that, that is, uh, what we're seeing now is um, the rich getting richer, not just in the U.S., but also in China. There's more billionaires in China than there are in the U.S. now. And, um, and so to think, well, who are, who are the forces that are going to be resisting neoliberalism? Um, and the, I think that you know, looking at those kinds of global um, global economic elites, um, you know, we can see a kind of, um, we might say a point of orientation where people can, can take, um, you know, can take these circumstances as being a real indication of how wrong things have gone that, you know, in this case, you know, certain people like Jeff Bezos have gotten so much richer during the pandemic while frontline workers are, um, you know, being, putting their lives in danger. Um, and aren't being, and, you know, hero pay lasted like two months for grocery workers, you know, and now it's just like everyone's expected to, to endure this. Uh, and so I do think that these experiences provide, um, a spur for people to think like, this can't be right. (laughs) This can't be the way things are supposed to be. And, and so we, we can't, we are sort of standing in a, in a bit of a, a precipice in a certain sense. And the, the pandemic has, you know, as so many scholars have explored over the last year, has made clear so many of these inequalities, so many of these gaping holes within society in terms of policy and um, and so forth. And and your 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 thesis and your discussion in the book really is about like we have the opportunity to change our perspective. Um, but I'm concerned that it's really hard to do that. It is really hard to do that. Uh, And I think that part of the discussion that I have in the book is that part of actually the most effective way of changing your perspective is already through political action. So in a certain sense, there's a chicken and egg problem. Um, But I don't think that that's actually a problem in that I do think that part of what the book can provide is a way of clarifying things for people who are all, who already feel the pull of um, or a desire to resist. Uh, I think that 
for some people, maybe the experience of, of wanting to resist neoliberalism will come from reading a book, but for lots of other people, it'll just come from their experience on the job um, or, you know, their experience of the gross inequalities in society. Um, and hopefully for people, or even just from the experience, of course, of being a part of these transnational supply chains, knowing, and this is really where the book starts, is the experience of knowing that the clothes that we wear are the product of massive injustice, but not really knowing what to do about it, um, not really even knowing how to think about it. And part of what and, the book provides them for people who already feel disquieted by these things is then a way of trying to think clearly and to, to be reoriented. But I think you're right that um, for most people, probably reading reading this book or any book might not be the source of, of the kind of desire to reorient themselves. But I, again, I think that there's there are so many aspects of living through this pandemic that have have really sort of shaken how we do think and how and the perspectives that we have. And, you know, even just sort of talking about access to the vaccine and the process of trying to get it um, has demonstrated the same kinds of, you know, transnational supply chain issues that you highlight. Um, as as really being some of these endemic problems within a neoliberal orientation. Um, I found it a fascinating book to read, and I really appreciate it. I'm curious, Ben, what are you working on now? Well, my second project um, has been revolving around um, populism and around the prospects for a kind of emancipatory and inclusive populism. Many of the kind of populist movements that we've seen uh, over the past now um, decade um, have been you know xenophobic racist exclusionary in various ways but people would feel the prospect of more inclusive and emancipatory movements um, and so part of what I'm interested in thinking about is what are ways in which populism um, may have internal, um, dynamics that lead towards exclusion, and what are other ways of reconceiving populism on um, a more um, just ground in that sense? And is that likely to come become a book? It's hard to know what shape the project will take. In that, I do think that there has been an explosion of populist literature uh, since I started, you know, working on the topic, and I feel that I. I'm not convinced that I think populism is an important topic, but I think there might be other master concepts that kind of are the headline. So I've, I'm increasingly thinking about popular sovereignty as the key concept and thinking about what are ways where the ideal of popular sovereignty can um, itself, um, what are, what are the ways in which it's entangled with exclusions? Um, what are other ways of reconceiving it? And how especially do we think about popular sovereignty in a time of climate crisis, where it seems like any national people is not going to be the right agent for thinking about how to address this enormous problem? Well, I hope that you will come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about it when it's finished, whichever <laughs> I direction hope it goes well. in. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Ben McKean, to talk about Disorienting Neoliberalism, Global Justice, and the Outer Limit of Freedom, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. This is available at the Oxford University Press website and any place else one might want to buy a book. 
Um, Thank you so much for joining me today, Ben. Thanks again for having me.